Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Sport Faith Life is excited to remind you that the Third Global Congress on Sport and Christianity is set for August 18 to 21 this summer in Cambridge, England. The conference will be held at Ridley Hall near the campus of Cambridge University, and in preparation, Sport Faith Life will interview all of the scheduled keynote speakers. Today we welcome Dr. Stephen Waller, professor at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. We're thrilled that our friend Stephen will deliver a keynote, and, and we can't wait to talk to him today. So, let's get started. With the third Global Congress on Sport and Christianity quickly approaching, we are so excited to be able to feature the keynote speakers on Sport Faith Life podcast. And today, we're very excited to have Dr. Stephen Waller with us. Dr. Waller, so glad to have you. And as we begin the conversation, we would love to have you tell us a little something about sport in your life. Okay. First, let me say it's great to be here with both of you. Uh, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, we haven't had a chance to see much of each other. Uh, I think the last time I saw you both was at Cal uh, when the Congress was there. But, but again, uh, God looks like he's taking care of you both really, really well. Um, my life at sport, interesting. Um, being a native of Flint, Michigan, I kind of grew up with sport. Um, as a kid, you know, we pretty much played everything. Uh, we lived on a cul-de-sac, but that made a great baseball diamond. <laughs> it was kind of doubled as a golf course. Um, didn't have a whole bunch of great facilities in our neighborhood, so we played in the street. And, and that was phenomenal. Made lifetime friends. Uh, needless to say, it was real close to our, our home so that my parents and grandparents could yell out the door and uh, make me come in or come in for dinner, uh, whichever came first. But sport was just a, a tremendous part of uh, my socialization into the community of a neighborhood, uh, but also uh, in, in school, both in elementary, middle, and then in high school. Uh, I went to Flint Southwestern High School, um, played baseball a little bit there, and I say a little bit because um, I, I discovered that uh, my quickness wasn't what it should, should be playing second base, and the guys get to be 6'2", 6'3", they hit the ball pretty hard. And so I kind of uh, made the choice that I would play football instead. So I played for Dark Christensen over there in, in, in the uh, early to mid-1970s. And uh, had a great team, had great teammates, uh, Reggie Williams, former Cincinnati Bengals, a teammate of mine, uh, Rick Patton, uh, was a tailback with 49ers. So we really had a star-studded uh, program over there. Rick Leach, uh, who later went on to Michigan and played well in Michigan. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, his uncle, Bob Leach, uh, recruited me in my next athletic stop. Uh, which is a fair state university. 
So I played at Ferris a couple of years and uh, played football there, played free safety there. Uh, had a great time, great four years. Uh, fortunately for me, I had a bunch of knee injuries over there, and so that kind of limited my playing career. Uh, probably should have stopped earlier. Uh, now that I've had a full knee replacement and some other things, hindsight is always 2020. Um, but again, sport has just been fantastic in my life. Uh, again, it has been one of those uh, points in my life that I've made a lot of great friends, uh, made a lot of wonderful memories. Um, again, just being from Michigan and history there of sport in terms of uh, Wolverines and uh, Spartans, and I'm an alumnus of both, uh, but also now that Ferris State University is the Division II National Football Champion, the Bulldogs. Um, played a lot of tennis in my day. Um, recreational and started playing competitively on the USTA amateur circuit profile uh, until my children started getting older. And then I quickly turned into a soccer dad, a tennis dad, and whatever else they decided to play. Both kind of know how that works. Uh, you shadow them until they <laughs> they decide to stop it or quit, whichever comes first. And so, I mean, that was a lot of fun. But uh, again, sport has been absolutely good to me. Uh, I want to believe I've been good to get good for it. Um, but over and above that, that's about it. Well, we trust that you have, and that's a really a pretty robust background there for us. Appreciate it. Uh, the the sports stuff is is intuitive for our listeners. You shared a little bit about some Michigan history too, which really resonates with Brian and me being in the state right now. And I think, Stephen, you might have uh, a degree from just about every single college in the state of Michigan. Is it is it is it pretty close? I mean, it seems like you you've been to a lot of different ones. That's that's impressive. We. <laughs> We are, uh, we're, we're humbled. We're humbled by that. But let me move on to, to, to faith in your life then. Talk to us a little bit about, about faith and what, what that's been in your life. Well, I'll tell you what, it begins here. My, my grandfather, the late Hezekiah Waller, uh, was a Baptist pastor in uh, Gretna, Virginia. Uh, my dad was from Virginia. I grew up in the Chatham, Danville area, which is not that far from the North Carolina border. Uh, maybe about 35, 40 miles from Greensboro, North Carolina. And so <clears throat> we were raised Baptist in a pretty religious household. Uh, of course, my mom grew up uh, in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, was United Methodist. And so that made for some interesting Sundays. Uh, my dad was a preacher's kid, of course. Uh, and I think as he grew up, he rebelled a little bit. So his church attendance was somewhat sporadic, but of course, mom lined us all up and marched us out the door. We would be in church pretty much every Sunday. And I always tell people the story when it comes down to um, the day that I accepted Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior. It was really on the back end of her, her first draft. <laughs> and so I have an older sister and uh, a younger brother and another younger sister. Uh, there are actually eight of them. Seven other siblings. The first four, she took off the first draft and says, Okay, today's the day. <laughs> if you don't get up and go, I'm going to get you when we go. Mm. And so we marched up and uh, shook the right hand of old Reverend Morris uh, over at Bethel United Methodist Church uh, 
And from that point, it was um, it, it was the beginning of a great life. At 16, my parents had the rule that uh, at that point we were mature enough to make our own decisions. So you could either stay at Bethel or you could join another church. Uh, for me, the hot church in the city was First Trinity Missionary Baptist Church. And so I actually joined there. And actually it was uh, wonderful, wonderful. Um, me and my buddies that were on my team were there. Um, some of my cousins went there. But what was important to me was there was a gospel being preached there that was relevant to an urban black people. Uh, a young pastor there was out of Detroit, and um, I mean, he could preach. He could preach, but he was also an incredible human being. Uh, very kind, very loving, uh, very gentle with all the teenagers who were rather rambunctious at that point in time. Um, but I stayed at First Trinity for a bunch of years, and actually, it was at First Trinity United, First Trinity Missionary Baptist Church that I actually got my calling in the ministry. And so the late uh, Dr. Franco Hockenhall actually uh, trained me, licensed me, and then ordained me. Uh, and so had a real positive history from that church. Um, one of the big things I learned at, at uh, First Trinity was not only doing mission work, but doing sport ministry. Um, one of my first big assignments, uh, once called into ministry, was ministering to young men uh, in our athletic ministry. And so I kind of got not only, not only a call into congregational ministry, uh, but also a call into sport ministry and sport chaplains. And so little did I know it that those two would follow me uh, pretty much all the days of, of my life. Um, I left for First Trinity in maybe 1997 or so and moved to Ohio. Um, had a parallel career. I worked in government for a number of years, but uh, every city I lived in, I've served the church there and got called to a church. And so um, I think this is my fifth church now. Uh, currently at Foster Chapel Missionary Baptist Church uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, where I served there as a an assistant pastor for uh, family care. But it's been wonderful. It's been absolutely wonderful. I've had a grand opportunity to meet a bunch of people that influential. Um, a lot of time to talk with some of some really impressive theologians along the way. Uh, you know, one of the people that I met early on was Miroslav Volk, who we had as a Congress. I just happened to, to meet Miroslav while I was at uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and we had him there as a lecturer. And of course, my advisor was uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Andrew Purvis, and you may have read some of the work of Andrew Purvis, but I was one of his uh, disciples, uh, I guess you could say. So I got, got a chance to meet Miroslav Wolf. Uh, and so he, along with a bunch of other folks, just big influences. Uh, it has been a wonderful journey. Uh, I'd like to believe that uh, I've done good work in the area of congregational ministry, but also support ministry, and more specifically support chapels. Um, when I went to seminary, I went to Pittsburgh Theological, uh, as I noted earlier, but also went to the United Theological Seminary, and did my second doctorate there. 
uh, really specialized in caregiving uh, for athletes. Um, but also did a lot of good work in the past 20 hours. So I'm somewhat of a hybrid this job. And so <clears throat> my life in Christ has been uh, wonderful. Uh, I'm very proud to say that I baptized all four of my children. Uh, everybody in our family is saved. Um, eh, my grandchildren are still kind of young. Uh, you know, we're preaching a good family gospel to the two 13-year-olds and the nine-year-old. And so we're just, we're just waiting on the Spirit to move in their lives. But uh, he will. And, and we're confident in that. But um, I've just had an incredible journey when it comes down to uh, my life in Christ. Well, Stephen, that's a that's an inspiring personal story and career story and family story. I think um, with your grandchildren, I think uh, if you just get the purse strap out, you could take care of that that evangelism right quick. Uh, sounds like you've got that all kind of sorted. So uh, it, it is good to hear uh, all those wonderful things. I wonder if there's something about you that our listeners could hear that uh, would help them get to know you a little bit. Something maybe a little off the beaten path, something unusual, maybe a hobby, maybe an interest, maybe a life circumstance. Where are you going to take this, Stephen? Well, hobbies, I'm a hacker when it comes to golf. Uh, I can't even say I play golf. <laughs> I go out with uh, two sleeves of balls. And if I bring one home, I'm in good spirits. <laughs> I love golf, but just never really put a lot of time into it uh, until I had knee replacement surgery. Uh, I love tennis. Uh, right now, I'm a really, I'm a really big smooth jazz lover, hmm. and so I collect music. And one of my great pastimes is sitting at home in my study and just listening with my, with my children when they come in, and uh, from time to time, my wife will come. But, you know, the bottom line is, um, I think that takes up a lot of my time these days. I think if there's one interesting fact about me that most people don't know, is that a sophomore year in college, my roommate and I, we actually became roadies. Ah. <laughs> and no one would believe that, you know. But we were actually roadies with George Clinton. Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, my buddy Tim's brother Mike was a... Uh, a big ticket DJ down in the Gordon Clinton and he just happened to catch us like literally we just got home from Ferris maybe about a week and we were just both kind of hanging around we had started working hey come on you guys you want to be roadies and not like that I really knew what a roadie was yeah but it just seemed like a cool thing to do for a week and so we followed Mike for a week and we ended up uh, working for George Clinton and uh, really discovered the backside of music background. Um, you got to see some really interesting stuff, hanging around with those guys, but it was just a fun, good experience. One of those things that I thought that I would never do, uh, because I'm pretty conservative, you know, but the bottom line is, uh, for that week, it was great, and me and my best friend had a heck of a time. Well, as a roadie to George Clinton, I think uh, that's pretty, that's a that's a claim to fame. Uh, I would go ahead and mention that at your uh, at your big speech at the Third Global Congress uh, on Sport and Christianity, which is coming up in August this year. So it's it's creeping up really fast. Uh, it's August 18 to 21 at Ridley Hall. 
in Cambridge, England, which will be uh, a fantastic venue, an exciting place to go, uh, kind of a, a, a stone's throw from London, uh, an opportunity for people that are from uh, other parts of the world to come in and sit down and break bread with scholars and practitioners, with athletes, with athletic directors, with sports ministry personnel, uh, pastors, all those sorts of folks all come together to talk about uh, the excitement and the issues of sport and Christianity. So we're really thrilled, uh, Stephen, that you have agreed to be one of the keynote speakers. And this is not fair at all because we're asking you to tell us about the speech before you've written it. Uh, but I wonder if you could just give us a sneak peek into maybe the direction you think you'll go uh, and, and maybe what this uh, opportunity sort of means to you. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, let me start by saying that I feel very blessed uh, to have this opportunity come my way. Uh, for as much as we were kind of kidding around our, about our buddy Andy Parker, uh, I, I am very grateful to Andy that he thought of And subsequently, uh, in his own wonderful way, uh, ended up encouraging me to uh, do this kindness uh, for him and, and the Congress. But I, I'll be very frank with you, I'm very excited about it. Uh, Cambridge uh, and Ridley Hall have a level of infamy attached to both. And so it's a big thing to really hard uh, on the campus of Cambridge University. Uh, I was telling my, uh, my brother, who's also a pastor, that Cambridge is one of those places that you read about. And it's one of those, when you're a young man, it's a, it's a place that's far, far away, and really smart people are there, and you know the, the work that they produce is incredible. So just to be there in the, the shadow of others, um, in this, this particular occasion uh, is it, really a treat for me. Um, I'm going to be talking about something that, that is important to me and that I think is potentially important to a lot of people around the world. Um, I'm going to be beginning the conversation with talking about the death of George Floyd and what that meant, uh, not only to us here in the U.S., but also those around the world. But I also want to weave in a conversation about what it meant to sport and how it has changed sport in some ways. And uh, being a sport chaplain, uh, one of the ways that it changed me was really thinking about the compassionate, culturally relevant care of people in sport. And the emphasis is on compassionate, culturally relevant care for those in sport. I think as, as chaplains, as people of sport or in sport, uh, we do a great job caring for one another. But I think that one of the things, this, this tragedy with George Floyd, uh, really unearthed was the fact that there are a lot of wounds in society that spill over to us individually. Uh, for example, um, one of the byproducts uh, of the untimely death of George Floyd, you know, was the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that that represented in terms of the hurt, the pain, uh, the sense of oppression, uh, the sense of not being heard, uh, particularly for people of color, uh, 
mainly African Americans and those that are Latinx. Um, for me, it unearthed uh, memories of the Detroit riots of 1967. And at that point in time, my, my dad was still in Detroit working for General Motors. And so I was actually there, you know, when those riots occurred and the smoke in the air. Uh, and even when we got um, moved to Flint, uh, the same thing was going on there. And at the root cause of it all were things like discrimination, oppression, um, and a, a social agenda that never manifested itself. And I think that much of that kind of blew up in the face of the tragedy of George Floyd. Um, it was also interesting for me in terms of how uh, black Americans, but also white Americans responded to that tragedy. Uh, I remember sitting here in my office and the day that, that George Floyd was murdered, uh, my phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. And people were calling me saying, I'm sorry, but what can I do? And that, that was a very odd question to me. Because one, these were all my friends, these were all my colleagues, university-wide. Uh, and I harbored no malice. Uh, there, there should have been no guilt. But it was just the dynamic that happened in that moment. And I think a parallel event for me that uh, really was significant was my youngest son, Jonathan, is now 30. And he was on the balcony of his home in Chicago. And he called me and he was weeping. And he said, Dad, I've never seen anything like this. What is this? And I had to remind myself that he wasn't even thought about in 1967 at the Harvard riots. And this phenomenon uh, was absolutely new to him, but kids his age, and I say kids, meaning young adults. And so he had no context with any of this. And I began to think about all the people that were not around uh, when America experienced this type of um, tumultuous conduct in the 1960s. And so it really made me think about, you know, again, what's happening to people in sport. And then right behind that death, we started to see the protests and the athletes were front and center. And part of that broader conversation was not only about the pandemic, but it was also about police brutality. It was about being in broader society. I remember talking with several of my students who were student athletes and um, right in back in my office, they started a march through campus and I remember them stopping in the next day talking to me about that and why they marched and would things ever get better? So there were all these broad questions, but they also were telling me things like, okay, well, we know we have our huddle, uh, but we're not sure what's going on there because this is a very awkward situation. Um, they began telling me things like, and these are not bad things, but in these kind of times, what's the context for talking about scripture? But I feel like the persons that are leading my study group, my huddle, don't look like me. They really don't understand me. They are not from where I'm from. So now that this has happened to a black man, 
how do I relate to that? And so it, it really pushed forward this need to think about ministry in context. Um, and so as we get to Cambridge, probably about midway through uh, that conversation, I'm going to shift and begin talking about uh, compassionate, culturally sensitive care for people in sport. Um, I think it's one thing to have a conversation around a hypersensitive issue like this, but I think it's another thing to leave with viable next steps that are inclusive. Um, and I'm wrestling with how to engage uh, the audience that may be there, uh, but the great hope is that you know we will talk about some of this, that we will think through uh, strategically what informed care treatment sport should look like two years after the death of George Floyd. Um, I would hope that as we exit the Congress, that some of our major journals uh, would entertain uh, special editions about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, it's kind of interesting uh, as I started preparing for this conversation. I'm going through uh, many of the journals that we commonly look at, uh, particularly in the area of theology and religion. And there's very little in there about DEI and how that informs ministry, namely a chaplain. Uh, you know, I'll start to plow through some of the social science stuff, and I'm sure there'll be a number of pieces there that I can draw from. But the bottom line is, you know, this should be an issue that shouldn't be an afterthought. As we move forward, this should be a forethought in terms of how important diversity equity inclusion are uh, as we do um, sport chaplaincy related ministry. And then from there, like I said, I, I hope that we can come to uh, some understanding as to how we move forward. But I think it's so one of the things conversation um, in which people can challenge. Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, I've really loved that the Global Congresses haven't shied away from talking about social issues, specifically related to sport because of the nature of our topic. But uh, at the first Global Congress, there was a keynote uh, related to the response to the Hillsborough disaster. The second Global Congress, there was a keynote that was in response to the Penn State and Michigan State scandals. And now yours for this third one. I, I absolutely love when keynoters can, can connect their theory and their expertise to, to social issues that are going on. And I also absolutely love when keynoters bring in their own personal experiences and what they're talking about. I mean, after all, like keynote speech, speeches are, are long, right? They're long. And and so when when the presenter can relate their personal experiences to social issues of the day, to the theory that they're experts in, I just, I absolutely love that. I'm, I'm so excited right now to hear what you have to say. Uh, but this isn't a new thing for you, right? Connecting your personal experiences and, and all of your professional expertise into the research that you're doing, right? And so I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to the ways in which you've really stepped in at a, at a personal level to, to the work that you've done. And, and thank you for that, Chad. Um, and I think that's an important point because the scholarship that many academics do, uh, what makes it really wonderful is that when it's done in context, but also it's applied. Hmm. People that are in practice can use it. 
uh, I think one of the great dangers of being an academic is that we find ourselves in, ourselves in the proverbial ivory tower and we talk to each other right. and not to the people that could be consumers or people that the uh, subject of, of research is about. And so I've tried to spend a great number of years doing work that's meaningful to people and apply. Um, two big areas for me is are um, I look a lot at discrimination, namely discrimination in employment and sports context, uh, particularly as it happens to African Americans in the country and women. Um, I've got several publications uh, in that genre, uh, book chapters and things of that sort. The, the other line of scholarship that I try and put a lot of work into is when it comes down to sport chapters. Uh, what it is, what it should look like, uh, professionalism when it comes down to sport chaplaincy, uh, development of identity of sport chaplains and how significant that, that is in terms of the way that we do ministry. Um, but I also am doing some work this summer, actually, and in, in, in the fall, uh, around this topic of organizational people. Uh, where we are very intentional in harming others and what that really looks like. Um, how we call it out, how we name it, and how we do away with it. So those are three areas of scholarship that I'm really uh, working in these days. So I wonder, thanks for that. I wonder if I could just try to uh, hone in on the second one you mentioned, which is your, your chaplaincy work, your sport chaplaincy work. And you started to talk a little bit about care, this idea of care. And I presume you're talking about the athletes there, but I imagine you're also talking about the chaplains um, and the the way that they interact with their athletes and thinking about um, the role, the specific role of sports chaplaincy. And so I wonder if you could, given your perspective on that, and then also how you've thought about life circumstances, things like George Lloyd's death and so on, impacting um the way that care is done in sport environments and and maybe just give us a, a, a kernel to, or two about how that is, uh, how you've adapted the way that you work with chaplains um, because of uh, maybe some new insights and new world events. Okay, sure. I, I think to begin with, one of the things that George Floyd and his untimely death has taught us is that we live in very much a racialized society. Um, I think part of the popular lingo these days is to talk about colorblind. Um, people come down where they will about that, but as you are looking at me, you can see that my skin hue is different from yours, and vice versa. And so it's obvious that there are distinct differences between us. Now, the, the bigger question is, you know, should those differences matter? And I think that, that we're at a place in time that we're as we are learning to progressively move beyond some of the differences that have kept us apart and harmed us historically. I think part of the big challenge that happens in this area, in, in this era rather, is to think about what your team, the individuals you work with, who are they? Who are they racially, ethnically, gender-wise, so on and so forth? 
and begin to understand their context and begin to immerse yourself with permission into their lives to do active ministry. And what I mean by active ministry is walk right alongside them. When they're hurt, you help heal wounds. When they're in need of wise counsel, you provide that. Uh, when they're in need of a friend, uh, and I think about Jesus' discourse on friendship. What does it really mean to be a friend? To lay down your life? Uh, for me, that is hugely significant in the work I do as a chaplain. Uh, matter of fact, I was trying to, trying to get out of my home this morning uh, to come to work, and my cell phone goes off. And it is a, uh, a young woman that I had worked with during high school and uh, the four years she was at um, a particular university in the Southwest. Uh, subsequently, she graduated and she's uh, a young engineer, but she also coaches volleyball. And she called me and began talking to me about the fact that uh, her fiance is abusing her, physically abusing, verbally abusing, so on and so forth. And so, when we're walking alongside of you, some things cause you to stop and help and heal and make whole towards the end that they can keep walking on their journey. And so, I, I bet you I spent probably an hour on the phone uh, with this young lady. But uh, as I told her mom, you know, she's like one of my daughters. And uh, I, like I said earlier, two beautiful daughters. and. Uh, God forbid anything happen to them, but whenever they've needed me over their 40 and 35 year lifespan thus far, dad has always dropped it and been there for them. And it's the same way with the people that I work with in sport. But, but, but I think the work ahead of us, Brian, uh, is really to think about what contextualized ministry looks like. Uh, I began reading something today, uh, again, uh, thinking about this topic of uh, some of the early work of James Cone, who talks about the value of a black theology in the lives of African Americans. That's not to say that, uh, again, a black theology is a bad thing. What it does, it puts the word of God and the words of Jesus into the context in which people live. Uh, for example, uh, you being a Michigander, um, you have some familiarity with poverty in Detroit or poverty in Grand Rapids. I mean, you've probably seen some of that face-to-face. -face. Um, when you begin to look at that critically, there are a lot of things that this gospel can do for us. But I think in order for it to be effective, one of the things that we have to do is put it in the proper time. That Jesus isn't far away. That Jesus is right here in the heart of your pain, your suffering, and all that you might go through as an impoverished person. Uh, uh, even on a campus, um, you can take a student athlete that is not doing well academically. You know, I think it's important not only to help that person be hopeful, hopeful, but it's also important to know that Jesus can meet me right here in the space that I'm in in this moment. And so that's the kind of work that I'm talking about now. And that's the kind of thing 
that I'm hopeful and optimistic that we can think about is doing ministry within a context. It's kind of interesting. You know, when you think about a football team and a basketball team, the vast majority of people on those teams are African Americans. And that's not to say that uh, a good understanding of the Bible and compassionately teaching out of that Bible uh, cannot be helpful. But I think it's also helpful when you can take those words God, the words of Jesus, and you can give them life in context. Uh, for as many people that there are that are unchurched, that may be an athletic, on athletic team, but there are a lot of them that are churched. And they come out of the black church, so to speak. So I think at some level, you've got to make that real. And so, it's not just here in the U.S., I think globally. Um, that's something that we should probably continue to do or begin to do if we're not doing those things. So those are some of the kind of challenges I'll be leaving with uh, our brother in the sport chapters. Well, it's it's very clear throughout this conversation, Stephen, that you're 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 right in the center of what this global Congress movement is all about. Right? It's it's bringing the the practitioners and the theoreticians uh, together uh, around people like you that, that have feet in both in both camps that are doing both those things if we want to even say there's a there's a separation between those two but as you sit here in your office in the ivory tower talking about the applied work that you're doing it's just a reminder to me of the value of these congresses where we get together and we get to share ideas uh, through walls of uh, that divide industries in ways that we normally don't get a chance to talk to. So I, I wonder, as you think about yourself as a participant at the Global Congresses and thinking about now going to Cambridge, what are you most excited about for this third Global Congress? Hearing others. Hmm. Hearing others. Uh, I think uh, my life has been enriched um, by listening to others that are practitioners, academics, those that are educators in various and sundry ways, uh, just hearing what they have to say, hearing their narratives, uh, listening to their research. Uh, an interesting irony is, I think I was at the first one, and I was talking about something related to sports chaplains, and there was this guy, he was sitting in the back of the room, and he's just listening to every word that I said, and he stopped me afterwards and said, hey, can I talk to you? And I said, of course, come on, let's go to lunch. So we ended up going to lunch and we sat around. I forget where we were, but uh, we had those bag lunches. The bag, <laughs> yep. bag lunches. Yeah. Uh, and so we sat down and opened our lunches and sat there on the floor, really, just talking. And, and actually, what was going on there was God was putting the two of us together. Uh, that guy was Zach Smith, mm-hmm. who was now a professor at Penn State University, Harrisburg. And so, uh, as, as it would, would be and God would have it, uh, I was actually recruiting a doc student. And hmm. so, Zach came to the um, University of Tennessee for three years, matriculated through, uh, and is doing an incredible job over Penn State Harrisburg. And so, it's a, I think another advantage is you can meet a lot of cool people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, Stephen, you articulated... Um 
sort of that reason that people come back to the Global Congress and, and what we want to communicate to anyone that's considering now attending this year, maybe for the first time in, uh, in Cambridge. Um, you can find information about the Global Congress on our Sport Faith Life website, sportfaithlife.com. And uh, as I mentioned, it's coming up quickly here in, in uh, August, August 18 to 21 on the campus of uh, Cambridge University uh, at Ridley Hall. So we're really excited about this and we're really excited to, uh, to catch all of Stephen Waller's keynote address uh, in the months ahead. So thank you so much, Stephen, for spending a little time with us today. And we're really looking forward to, to meeting you again in, per in person in just a few months. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Brian. Hey, appreciate what you guys do. Uh, may God continue to bless you. And hopefully, appropriate time for you Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com. Oh, 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 oh,